Bowl of Nouns is the canonical name of the original game. It's essentially, there's a video of me doing charades, but the clues are more, I don't know, adult themed. Not not super adult themed, <laughs> just not for children. Taxes. <laughs> well, a little more. <laughs> Uh, Taxes and wills and uh, <laughs> yep, the fun oh, stuff, you know, adult stuff. Deedery I am a bill. <laughs> <laughs> something, something Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at Thoughtbot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari, and I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey, Chris, how's your week going? It's going well. Uh, yeah, it's been a short week. We had uh, Memorial Day on Monday, so I took that off. That's the first day I've paused in a while, and that was actually very nice to have the long weekend. And then the rest of the week kind of flew by, but now it is Friday afternoon, and we're here recording. And uh, yeah, it's been good. How about you? Uh, yeah, same. Uh, it's been a good week. Had Monday off. Uh, I saw a tweet from someone that I appreciated. Uh, maybe if I can find it, I'll link to it in the show notes where it was a friendly reminder that it is a short week. And just because it's a short week doesn't now mean you try to cram 40 hours worth of work into four days. It means you only work the four days. Uh, so that was just fun. And I appreciated that because that certainly is who I am, <laughs> where I will try to still work a full week, even though I had the day off. But yeah, it's been a, a lovely week. In terms of the work that I did this week, I had a win, which is great. I also took an L in the game of code cleanup. Uh, so while pairing with another developer and implementing a new feature, we noticed a controller code that was ripe for refactoring and a bit of cleanup, but it wasn't part of our work, so it didn't fit into the narrative of make the change easy to then make the easy change. So instead, we captured a few of those items and concerns into another ticket and then once our feature work was completed, we revisited the ticket, which is great because that's often a concern. But in this case, we both had confidence that we'd be able to revisit and then triage later. So we agreed to tackle that work that we would time box each of the items that we had highlighted as a concern. And the first one that I tackled was to identify a specific code path if it was still in use. So for the update and create action in the controller, it would look in two places for the attributes. So it'd either look at the top level and the params and look for attributes there, or it was looking at like params.require and then the record name and then permit the rest of the attributes. So we were fairly confident that we could remove the first case where we were looking at the top level for the attributes and just only support or require that all requests wrap the attributes in the necessary key. But to really be certain and positive, Sumo Logic came in handy for this, which is a service that will manage logs and also offers analytics. So we used that to then verify to search all of the requests that were coming to that specific controller to verify that all the parameters were, in fact, being wrapped in that key as we expected. The query language for Sumo Logic was a little bit of a hurdle to figure out. I, it took me a bit to, to find documentation that was really helpful because I was looking for such a specific thing where I wanted like all the requests that was a put or a post. And then I wanted it for this specific controller. And then I wanted to verify that the attributes, if they were wrapped in this key or not. So it did great in the sense that it, it gave me what I was looking for, but it took a while for me to figure out the exact syntax to write that query. But once I, I did that, I checked for the last 30 days because that felt appropriate enough because this is just an internal endpoint. It's not an API that's exposed to external clients. I verified that we could indeed remove that path. 
So I ripped it out. That was great. The mm. L that I took, the loss, <laughs> was similar. It was still in that same controller, but it was verifying that a code path was not in use. And that one we couldn't verify confidently. So I spent about an hour with another developer looking into it. And it's just tangly enough. It's just confusing enough. And it's explicitly tested. Someone put some thought into this and some consideration that it's a real flow, but we can't verify as to when this flow would ever happen. So we spent an hour on it and then declared bankruptcy and moved on. So all in all, it was good. Uh, so we had uh, two cleanups uh, that were implemented and then one that we decided to move on from. That part's always hard for me. The I'm going to tackle this bit of refactoring, this cleanup that I'm really interested in. I have some of the context for it. And I'd love to clean up the code for the next developer, but then also adhering to the promise that I made to myself and the team that we would only spend an hour on it and then declaring bankruptcy. It was one hard to do, but then once I did it, it was very freeing. It was like, well, I did the thing we tried. It's not worth it at this time to pursue further. And then I could walk away and move on to the next feature. I definitely uh, empathize with the idea of it's hard to like let those go when you feel like you're close. You're like, if I could just spend a little bit more time, I might be able to clean this thing up. But I totally agree with the sentiment of um, we have to sort of stay true to the the promises. We have to like, as we're communicating with product and saying, hey, we need to carve out a little bit of time here to clean this up. Trust us. It'll be for the better. It'll only cost this much in terms of development hours, but it'll be worth it. And yeah, we need to like stay honest there so that we have trust kind of going in both directions and make sure that it's worth the effort. Because if it takes 20 hours to clean up something that, you know, doesn't really move the needle, then what have we really done with our time? But yeah, good that you were able to uh, untangle yourself from that work and get back to something else. I like how you just said that, like, you're almost there because it was that way for like the hour that we were looking at it where it was like, oh, just one more thing to try and then one more thing to try. And everything felt like it was bringing us a little closer, but at the same time would then create like three new questions as to like, why is this happening? And when would this happen? And doesn't even matter if this happens. And <laughs> yeah, so it was definitely one of those like winding trails that I, I could have spent the whole day like trying to untangle. But like you said, it's not the value that we needed at that time to figure out. It does mean some soul in the future may work with that code and have to go down that path. But that'll happen when it happens. <laughs> or maybe it won't happen. And maybe yeah. it's just fine. And maybe that code either isn't being used, and then it doesn't really matter or is rarely used or just works or, you know, any number of things. Uh, it's interesting that you were talking about trying to figure out the usage or whether or not a code path was executed, because I actually was doing something very similar this week where we're doing a bunch of refactoring in one of the apps that I'm working on. And at this point, they're actually two or a, there's a handful of different sort of clients for the data, the core data model that we have. And we want to start to fold some of them back together. We've decided that some SOA type expansions were probably not the right thing. And we want to bring the whole data model back together. But as part of doing that, we want to clean up any unused code that we can. So primarily this app is it's an API server for two mobile apps for an Android and an iOS app. There are also some weird things where there's a couple of web UI ways to interact with the content of the site. Uh, it's unclear whether or not those are used anymore. There are some that are definitely used, but will not be used in the future. And so there's generally the idea of, is this code actually running anymore? There's also the like old versions of the iOS or Android app may hit different endpoints and different code paths, but those are sort of deprecated. And so the thing that I've introduced that I'm not sure how well it's going to work out, but it's a tool called Coverband. Have you ever seen Coverband? No, I like the name though. 
So Coverband, as far as I can tell, is very much based on coverage tools or like simple cov for um, coverage in your test suite, but it runs in production. So it instruments all of the execution of your code, similar to how like Scout or Skylight or one of those other metrics type of tools would work. And in the background, it just watches any execution of the code and will increment a counter in Redis if it sees that a given line of code has been executed. And so then we know this code has been executed or this is a hot code path that gets used a lot as an interesting additional version. But in our case, we already had Redis sitting around because we're using Sidekick. And so I was able to just sort of turn this on as far as I can tell and have no overhead or consider it seems fine. Everything seems fine. But it started to collect data. And it's one of those things where similar to what you were saying, I want to see probably a month's worth of data and see like, is this code ever used? The complicated thing is I actually don't know how it works and how much I can trust it. Like if it says this line of code was never touched, are we definitely super sure? I think we are. I think that's how it works, but I will have to do that research. Basically, let me set it up and have it start collecting. And down the road, I will revisit this and see if A, is the data telling me an interesting story? And B, then do I trust that data? Because if so, I'm going to start ripping out code. My favorite thing to do. This is very serendipitous. I'm very excited that you just shared this with me because I was just thinking earlier when I was working on that ticket that then I declared bankruptcy on and I couldn't figure out when we're getting there is part of me was like, I just want to log at some point if we get here and like capture the state. I don't want to spend any more personal time digging into this and exploring like all the reasons we may get here. I just want to know, do we get here? And then if I have that information for uh, a month, that sounds like a good number for me as well in this case. Uh, And then I can just go check the logs and see if we ever got there. And if so, then I'll spend some more time into like cleaning up that code. So it's a bit more clear as to like why this matters. But otherwise, I can just get rid of it. So I love that idea. Okay, I'll have to look into cover band and see if that's something worth implementing on our side, because that sounds like exactly what I want. Or maybe there's a, a low hanging approach or a a less involved approach I could take where I truly do just log something because then Sumo Logic would pick up on those logs, I believe. I'm not super familiar with Sumo Logic, but perhaps there's something I could log directly to Sumo Logic and then just check there. So I don't need cover band, but I could use the log management system that we have. I'll say if you have Redis sitting around, it was basically like add the gem. And I forget if there was even a, I think with Rails, it just auto configured itself. And all I had to do was add the gem and then it was off and running. And in production, it looks for a particular environment variable for the Redis URL, which again, we already had because we're using Redis in production. And it's, I think it's Redis underscore URL is what it was looking for. So I was like, cool, everything just works. I just put a gem in and deploy and everything's great. So in terms of like minimal effort, that certainly hit the sweet spot for me. But um, yeah, interesting to compare notes in the future and see what our various approaches have unearthed and whether or not we were able to delete large portions of code. But otherwise, in terms of my week, there's a pattern that I've been noticing developing on uh, the other client app that I'm working on, which I don't think I've done in the past, but I actually really like it. And so the thing that we're doing is we are using Flipper, which is a feature flag library. Uh, So managing feature gates and user specific things and anything like that. But at this point, we actually don't have we're just about to start adding real users into the app. So we've been building for a while. Uh, But one of the actually two of the individuals on the team are spending a lot of time demoing to prospective users of the app, basically sales pitches. And initially, I think they were working off of wireframes or other things, but very quickly, this person is a developer themselves. So they were able to build the first version of the app and they had something that they could talk to. But a lot of the app was smoke and mirrors at that point. So it was pages with mocked up content, but not dynamic at all or not real or showed potential workflow states, but with, again, stubbed out data, that sort of thing. And so slowly, as we've been 
building out the actual features of the app, we still actually want to keep that demo version alive. And so now sprinkled throughout the app are all of these different places where we have a demo. We have one demo flag. And with the demo flag turned on, there are all of these different subtle behaviors that are, are different for the demo condition that show off future aspirational versions of the product or more complete profiles filled out or you know different things of that nature. But what I really like about it is it means that the sales team is demoing with the software. Like it's very slightly aspirational, but it's actually the real software for the majority of it. And whenever we're able to actually unwind a portion that is behind the demo flag and just make it real functionality, that's also a little celebration. I've worked on a lot of teams where the sales team was demoing an Envision mock-up or they're demoing a PowerPoint or something else that is not the actual software. And almost always, it contains features that are not real. And then suddenly, some big customer comes along and buys that thing. And it's like, oh, no, now we have to build it. And uh, we forgot that it's going to be really hard. And suddenly, we now have this time crunch and we have to push. And so I both really like the functionality as to how this has been working, but also the fact that it keeps the demo and the real product so closely tied together. It's funny when you first mentioned that, I initially thought I was like, oh, that's interesting because now you've got, like you said, those two code paths. So you have like all this demo code that's sprinkled throughout your code. And part of me was like, oof. But then you just brought me around for the reasons that you were saying, because yes, I have definitely felt more pain where folks are showing software that doesn't exist. And it's and it's understandable that what they have gets out of date. And then it's hard to understand like what's actually in the software, what's not. And then keeping those two in sync with each other would be tedious. So yeah, I like the approach that you're describing where at least you are using the software. I also really am drawn to the idea of the celebration where you have something behind a demo flag and then you either get to incorporate it and then remove that flag for that feature or you decide not to build it and then you can delete it. I really like that part too. So yeah, that's that's a really neat process. Yeah, uh, I won't take any credit for it. It's the uh, someone else on the team started with it and then we've just slowly, we've sort of been leaning into that pattern more and more over time. And I'm like, yeah, this is actually, this is working really well. And the other nicety, like, to what you were highlighting there is we are also writing solid test coverage for all of the demo code branches because it turns out right now that's actually probably the most significant use case for the app is to demo it for sales. So it is very important that it works in those situations and we're able to ensure that by putting it into the test suite and making sure that when we make some unrelated change, we're not breaking the portion that's in the demo. And so I also really like that we're able to do that because I've also worked on apps where we are demoing via the software, but the demo data goes out of date or in other ways, it just starts to drift because it's not considered core production functionality. So we're not testing it. But like much like we've talked about in recent weeks, if it's in the admin and it matters, we should test that. If it's in the demo, we should test that. Like anything that matters, we should probably test. So yeah, I definitely like that aspect as well. I think you're being gracious and giving me credit for thinking of testing. I did not think of that. And now I'm very excited because you're right. That means we get to write test coverage for a very important part of our product and application because those demos matter so much. I have recalled in the past working with teams where we would have a special branch, like maybe it's like the demo branch or something, and we protect it and we're very careful with what's on there. We have a big demo coming up and then it's communicated and it's like, well, only this code can be on that branch and it needs to be in this date. And it, it was fine, but it always felt a bit stressful to me because then I was just imagining being that person that's going in for the demo. And then if someone made a mistake and like pushed to the branch and they shouldn't have or deployed during like a demo or something. And if there's any like hiccups that happened, that always brought me some stress. So I, I very much like it for all the reasons that you said, including the testing. 
Yeah, actually, the the feature branch version I think I've also run into, and that's just an example of a long running branch that like we need to rebase. And oh, we've added a whole new the dashboard's now added, but the demo doesn't account for that. When you rebase, you're gonna be sad, and uh, you know all the things that happen with long running branches. So yeah, it's a solution, and it's one that we found working really well of late. So yeah, wanted to share it. Awesome. Uh, well, speaking of practices that you enjoy, I have a quandary for you in regarding a practice that I'm not really sure how to tackle or where to go next with it. So Dependabot has been keeping me up at night, and it's by no means Dependabot's fault. Dependabot is wonderful. For anyone who is less familiar with Dependabot, it's a service that will create pull requests against your application, and it will keep your dependencies up to date. And it's acquired by GitHub. It's free. It's really nice to have. So that way you don't have to keep up with new versions. And instead, it's going to prompt you for when there's a new version. You can also turn it on for just security fixes. So if you want less noise, that's really nice. The thing I'm running into with Dependabot is we've turned it on for an application. It's doing a great job of updating. We have our NPM packages, and then we also have everything, our gems that is updating. So for Rails and for Ember. And we did, when we first introduced it, keep it to, I think it was three pull requests a day is what we limited it to, which was still kind of a lot in the beginning because there were so many to go through. So on one hand, it was great because it was going to work and we had all these PRs to review. On the other hand, it has caused a lot of noise. And then we have a bunch of old PRs that aren't getting addressed. And it's one of those areas where it doesn't really fit into anyone's necessary like current workload in the sense of like it's explicit as to who's going to work on these PRs. So when introducing Dependabot, we have a documentation repo. And in that documentation, I put up a draft of sort of like introducing this is what Dependabot does. This is where it's configured for the process of like how we address these PRs, just assign it to yourself and then go through like the normal PR process that we would do. So everybody feels empowered to take over those PRs. But then also because it's not like an explicit part of the workload, then they sit there for a long time because everybody's also very busy with their scheduled work for that sprint. So I'm in a state where I'm not sure how to get more of the PRs addressed, if there's a way to sort of like speed up that process to where they're easier to merge so they take less time. Do I need a marketing campaign to like, let's address the Pinabot PRs, but then that feels obnoxious. <laughs> so. I'm just in this state where like, I know everybody has great intentions and they're interested. And and when people have downtime, they, they do tackle them, but that is pretty rare. So then I find I myself in Amazon, where I typically will try to tackle at least like one every couple of days. So I'll identify one and look through it and then push that through the flow. I think part of the concerns also that we have a little bit of tension when it comes to like all the steps that we have to go through to then get it merged and deployed. Yeah, I'm curious if you have thoughts. Yes, I, well, I think I do. I have only worked with Dependabot on a few different things. And one of the first things that sort of caught me about it was how noisy it was, because it's for every gem or NPM package, you're getting a distinct pull request. And I've always wondered if it would be possible to batch those. I assume they don't. Like Technically, it's certainly possible, but I assume it has downstream effects of that makes it harder to merge that pull request because it now represents a bigger change. But I would love that of like once a week, Dependabot comes in and maybe the security ones proactively because I'm going to have to fix those anyway. Whenever there's, a, whenever there's a CVE, I have to go in and open a pull request for that and fix it or fix it in my branch. But it like blocks my workflow. But in the case of version bumps, 
small little version bumps to packages that we want to be working on. If that just happened once a Friday and then that, you know, that's easier. I have one of these PRs to deal with. I would be into that, but I don't think that's possible. So that's just me sort of uh, postulating out into the wind and then uh, to get back to real things. Uh, I do know that GitHub has the nicety. They'll dim on the commit list commits by Dependabot, which is really nice when you're looking at GitHub. But I look at the Git log in the terminal constantly, and there's just so much noise that I see in there as well. That's another reason that I would want the batching. Um, but it is interesting that GitHub has that functionality built in now where they're like, let me, let's just show you the version that you want to see, which is all your friends' commits, not your Dependabot's commits. I haven't seen that. You're saying that if I look at like GitHub's list of pull requests, that certain PRs are going to have like a dimmer font color? Not the pull requests, the commits. So after they've been merged, it will de-emphasize those commits because they're really just bumping a package. But pull requests, it's still, I don't know, in theory, an equally important pull request. So I maybe wouldn't want them to dim those. Um, You could do an author filter on GitHub. So you could say, like, show me all the open pull requests where author is. I actually don't know if they have not in their search now that I think about it. But anyway... So the one project that I did work on was the last project I was working on when I was at ThoughtBot. I was working alongside Will Hall, and he was the hero that every morning, the first thing that he would do is come in and take a look at all the Dependabot things and carefully merge them. And that was wonderful. So there was just one person on the team that was doing it. Granted, that sort of work shouldn't fall to one person in general. But it was great that I just kept looking. I was like, how do we keep getting all these versions updated? What's going on here? And then I realized it was Will doing that. So Will was a good gardener of our uh, software at that point. But I'm sure there's a pun in here somewhere where you were depending on a bot. (laughs) I think that's the pun. You got it. (laughs) Crushed it. I made a pun. I'm terrible at puns. (laughs) I made one. (laughs) Very proud of myself right now. Thank you to our sponsor, Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. And it integrates seamlessly with AWS so you can start monitoring EC2, RDS, ECS, and all of your other AWS services in minutes. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Try it yourself by starting a free 14-day trial today and installing the agent. Plus, you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. Visit datadog.com slash thebikeshed. That's all one word, T-H-E-B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D to get started. Setting all of that aside, all of those ideas about when the pull requests are open or things like that, I think what you were describing there started to hint to me that there are some complexities around either the test suite and confidence therein, or merging a pull request and what that means, or deploying out to staging or to production, when and how often do those happen, who owns them, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm guessing that's where the difficulty is, because my hope would be any of these pull requests gets opened, you wait for a few minutes, CI runs, if it's green, you should just be able to push the big green merge button. And so that portion, I would hope is just doable. Uh, depends on how much trust you have in the test suite. Like, does anyone feel the need to poke at the software after these bumps happen? Yeah. So there are two points of friction. You hit the nail on the head. There are two points of friction. And one of them is that when Dependabot issues a PR, we don't run the CI suite or the test suite once a PR is open. So that's something that has to be done manually. And that's something that I believe the team is working towards. I think they may be moving to Circle CI right now. I hope I'm not misquoting. If I am, then 
that here we are. But I think there is a goal to eventually move over to Circle CI to then have some more of that automated capability. So every time a PR is opened, then the test suite will go ahead and run automatically. So that is one current point of friction that to run the test suite, then I have to click on the branch, pull it down, run the command that's going to trigger the test suite, and then wait for that to be green. And then the second point is because we are in a place of compliance and rules around what goes to staging and what goes to production, everything needs to go to staging before it can go to production. So even if it was just like a patch version bump, that still needs to go to staging before I can take it over to production. So there is a deploy step in there where I'll send it to staging and based on the change, test it out or basically just make sure that the site still works and then take it over to production. Interesting. And I assume that merging to master does not automatically deploy to staging. Correct. Yeah. Deploying to staging is still a manual process. Yeah, because staging is far more of like a testing environment. So there's a lot that's in staging that's not in master. All right. So I think we've we've highlighted a handful of things that like my gold standard is uh, CI is always going to be running. That's definitely true. Any push to any pull request that should be running CI and then merges to master will go out to staging. And that's the like, if that's going, then everything's just easier. But then any additional constraints that you're placing onto the workflow, I can understand how you get there. The one thing that comes to mind is if you end up with a bunch of these, Dependabot opens these pull requests, but you're not like beholden to Dependabot. It can you can sort of treat that as like, oh, Dependabot. There are seven Dependabot things open right now. Rather than trying to handle each of those seven, just create one new branch that has the superset of all of those version bumps, and then manually own that, so that you only have to do the big workflow and the running the CI and deploying to staging and all of that once. Um, so like manually batch them. That's the probably the thing that I would reach for, given the other constraints that you're talking about here. Um, But I would definitely be looking at those other constraints and seeing if we could loosen any of those up. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I think that's the approach that I'll try next. I've attempted that approach in the past, the idea of batching, but then either something would happen where some other people would also take on PRs and we ended up not batching them or a really nice thing would happen. And we I would dig into the package that we were upgrading and realize we didn't need it. So then I could rip it out. So it was very, it was very much a, um, you know, from office space where they're like, what would you say you do here? That was my question for every version bump that we were having for a package. So that turned out well, where I identified a couple that we no longer needed. So that was great that Dependabot helped us with that. So I haven't done the batching just yet, but I think it's a great idea that's top of mind, something to try next. My other thought process around how to approach this is with the idea that I always have this in the back of my mind that I'm leaving soon as being like a ThoughtBot consultant. Like it's thankfully it's not, I'm not leaving soon, but I know that I am leaving. So if I am that person that comes in each morning and then works on these PRs that when I'm left, I don't want to then leave it in a poor state where suddenly people are wondering what's going on with Dependabot PRs. Like why are they suddenly like cluttering and no one else has felt like the ownership of them. And we're not in that state. Other people are doing a great job of helping out. But I just want to make sure that it's completely independent of me. So even though I introduced the service, I want to make sure that the team owns it instead of me. Yep, that makes sense. I have always believed that the fact that ThoughtBot developers are going to leave at some point is sort of a superpower. It just makes everything more honest because it's always true. Either the business is going to shut down or people are going to leave basically as a rule about everyone. But it's so much more pointed with consultants where there is like an obvious timeline. But it, yeah, like don't let one person be the silo of information around an idea or don't let one person be the only person who knows how to do that critical process and those sort of things. So yeah, I definitely like 
staying in that mindset as much as possible, even even if you're not going to leave anytime soon, or even if you plan to stay for many years, even if you're you know you signed on to a ten year contract because this is the major leagues or whatever. I don't know how software hiring <laughs> works. So. Works like baseball, the major leagues. <laughs> yep, and I know a lot about baseball, so. <laughs> There is one other thing I could do where I tell Dependabot to only issue PRs for security updates. That's a really nice feature that they offer. So you don't have to concern yourself with all the updates. But I feel like enough value has come from all the other increments. They also have a really nice API in the sense that I can add a comment that adds Dependabot and then tell it a command to run. So I can tell it to rebase, I can tell it to close, like I can do all sorts of really nice things. So say if it is like a patch version bump, and I'm like, I really don't want to spend the time for this patch version bump, that's less important to me. But then if it were like a, a minor or something larger that I care about, then I can work on that. So there, there are some nice things that I could do that perhaps I should pursue either batching or maybe close some of the like the version bumps if I feel like it's just not worth it at the time to then rein in like how many Dependabot PRs we're going to work on each week. Is there a configuration for, so there's major minor patch or a BFF that you told me about last week. <laughs> Is there a way to tell it to not do the lowest one? So to only do minor or major? That's a great question. I don't know. That's something I'll have to look into because that may be the next thing I want is where if it's a patch version and it's not security related, then I don't want it. That would be another great way to reduce some of the noise. So I don't know. I'll, I'll have to look into that and get back to you. It's the BEZ Dependabot setting. You got to just find that somewhere in their documentation and then... The BEZ? Yeah, BEZ. Oh, the BEZ. <laughs> <laughs> I realized down, over the radio that this... Yeah. <laughs> Don't call me. I'll call you, Dependabot. You just hang out over there. Uh, Yeah, that kind of thing. Well, cool. I'm interested to see which of those ends up working out for you. And uh, yeah, let us know. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate all your thoughts on this. I think that'll be very helpful going forward. But yeah, it's been an interesting challenge. Cool. Well, to uh, to turn the tables ever so slightly, I have a situation that I've been dealing with and a question then for you as to how you would think about it, because I'm still struggling to find a solution that I like. So one of the systems that I'm working on, as I described a little bit earlier, is there's a core Rails app that serves primarily as an API server for two mobile applications. So an Android and an iOS, but with each of those, there's a bunch of versions. So there's a lot of different requests that may come in. That's sort of irrelevant. But the key thing that we want to do is make sure that we are sending down requests in the shape that the mobile clients expect. So there's sort of an implicit contract. The mobile clients definitely expect a certain shape of the data. The server, uh, it's a REST API, so it is producing the data in a certain shape. But um, as has been my hobby of late, I broke production recently and made some data vanish because I changed the shape of one of those responses. We're going to have to break this streak where you don't break production like every other week. That's, I'm really, I'm hoping for it. Uh, so interestingly, what happened here is I was refactoring. This is continuing on with some of the caching work that I talked about a few weeks back. I was sort of bringing that idea to the rest of the relevant controllers that were doing similar types of work. And I came across one of the controllers, one of the simplest ones, and it didn't have any tests at all for that controller, which that's not a great place to be in. So that's an obvious, I'll add some tests and I'll fix this, except they did it in the wrong order. I made the change because I was thinking about the change and I was like, oh, we got to go fix the tests. This is why we never do this. But I went to the tests and the test failed in a weird way that my brain, I don't know, must have been late in the day. I didn't think about it enough, but I was like, oh, okay. That little helper doesn't know how to handle when it's an array as opposed to an object. 
Turns out they always should be objects at the top level of this API. But I had accidentally removed a layer of wrapping. There was sort of an object with a single key that was the name of the resource, and then that was an array of those records. I had flattened that so that it was just returning the array at the top level. So it lost one layer of nesting in the API response. Whoops. But I realized, like, A, we didn't have a test for that at all, but B, we broadly don't have anything that constrains the shape of the data coming back from the API. We have some tests, but in a lot of cases, the tests are sort of re-implementing the logic, but not necessarily fully constraining that. And so did a little bit of a search. I actually asked out on Twitter and got some great responses there, but I still haven't found a solution that I really like. But the thing that I want to do is constrain the API responses to define that structure and then ensure that the server is always producing that, that we, you know, in our test suite, we confirm that. So I've looked at JSON schema as sort of the obvious thing that came to mind first, but I've historically not had good experiences with JSON schema. It's hard to read. It doesn't really express anything to not computers. And in terms of the like failure messages and things like that, it just felt like that was more than I wanted to take on. Similarly, there's Swagger, which is another, I think of it as a similar one, but can also produce some documentation, I think, but similarly didn't opt for that. The other ones that I looked at... In the dry RB camp, there's a dry schema, I think. So it has a nice Ruby DSL for defining, like, it's an object, and this key is a string, and this key is an array of numbers, but does that at runtime. So you can, like, put it into a test and say, does this response match this schema? So that one was interesting, but I ended up going with something called RSpec Request Snapshot, uh, which is somewhat surprising for me because historically I have been a naysayer of snapshot testing overall. So I was surprised that I ended up in that mode, but I actually really liked the approach. Uh, it allowed me to run a given API endpoint in a spec, and then it would capture the output, and then each future, each subsequent run after that would compare to that output. But it has some niceties around saying like, oh, this created at timestamp is a dynamic field. So don't break on that. So that's fine to vary. That will be a dynamic field. And it even has some extra subtlety of, you can say this is dynamic, but it will be of this shape. And that allows for a regular expression. So like we use a lot of UUIDs in the app that I'm working on. And so you can say, expect this dynamic UUID here. So it will just look for any UUID because it's going to change every time, but it will make sure it is of that format. So it worked okay. Uh, unfortunately, the failure messages, whenever anything changes, because these big JSON documents, is impossible to read. And so I end up having to like dump the snapshot again and get diff. But that's sort of where I've settled. I don't think it's great, but I'm interested. How would you think about that problem, given all of that context that I just gave you? That's cool. I hadn't heard of RSpec snapshot. I'll have to look that up. Uh, I also love that you reached out on Twitter to like ask folks. That's really cool. That's a rare one for me. As you know, that's one of my <laughs> blind spots. I'll just continue searching the internet so hard. But no, I, <laughs> I asked people and people were super nice and gave me a lot of good replies. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So my opinion may be an un unpopular one, but I am thinking with the the context that you provided and everything that happened, Part of me is leaning into the camp of this happened. We didn't have, you didn't have test coverage for that controller. So you weren't sure of like the original behavior. And then it sounds like you altered the controller and then tested the new behavior. So there wasn't that safety net to let you know that you had altered what it originally would be. And that now it was like a flattened response that was being returned. That feels like such a unique spot to be in where there was an existing test coverage to document and then adding the test coverage after the change that part of me is like maybe just accept that that's what happened in this particular case and not introduced a new tool that tries to standardize this because you already do have test coverage i'm guessing for the other controllers to document those responses 
So at some point, having the RSpec request snapshot testing is going to feel like overkill. And then someone's going to come along and wonder, like, what introduced this? It feels like one of those, we reacted to a pain. Something bad happened, and we want to make sure that doesn't happen again. And that really resonates with me. But it also feels like one of those cases where it was a unique enough spot that I don't know if I would reach for tooling just yet, because it feels like it may be something that likely won't happen again. Or it's more, I would look for the behavioral change of adding the test before the change. So then that way we document the existing behavior before adding the change because I, I think that would have covered it as well is that true uh yes if i had done it in the correct order i think things would have been fine so that would cover it if we had the existing test coverage that would have covered it i will say i really like the hot take of what if it were secret behind door number three that you didn't even know was there i don't feel great about the test coverage that we have because i've now broken this api a few different times in each of my attempts to refactor and so broadly my trust in this test suite is a little lower than i want so i've started to think about what would it look like if we were to feel very confident. And actually, sort of to flip it on its head and to visit one of my favorite topics, GraphQL is, in my mind, a great answer to this because it will inherently produce a schema. And then what's nice about it is I don't actually care that I'm producing the same thing every time. I, pr I care that I'm producing the thing that the client wants. And so the way I'm thinking about it right now is make sure the API always returns the same shape of data. But... In the end, what I actually care about is make sure that I give the mobile clients what they need. And GraphQL actually flips that whole thing on its head where the client gets to say what it wants, but then the shape of the data that they're getting back is determined and is constrained by the schema of the GraphQL API. And so I wouldn't have to even think about this consideration if I were in a GraphQL world because now the client's in charge of their own show and I just have to make sure that I satisfy the GraphQL schema, which sort of inherently happens by building one. I definitely have to rethink caching in N plus one. So that would be a whole thing because that's been a lot of my adventure there. So definitely not a trivial change or one that's probably going to happen at all. But it is a thing that like now that that's in my head, now that I know that that's you know, one of the possibilities out there in the world, I'm looking at this REST API and I'm like, you're you're brittle. You're going to break. I broke you a couple times. I don't want to do that again. Uh, but I do really like the framing that you put on it of, are we reacting to this acute pain that is not necessarily something that we're going to run into again? I know Herman has a really great blog post that I come back to on that, which I think say no to more process, I think is the name of that post. But I'm a huge fan of that one. And uh, I appreciate that that is your response to this. Yeah, you're, you're right. I love that blog post that he has. We'll, we'll be sure to link to that one. So that influences my opinion a bit further as well, because you'd mentioned that it's broken several times. So it's not just a one-time pain that you felt like you've been through this a couple times. So I certainly understand a bit more. To be clear, it's broken as, uh, I don't know, I broke it is the fair way to say it. So maybe the problem in this situation is me. But yes, there have been multiple breakages. I just happen to have been around for all of them. I'm sure it's broken before I got there too. <laughs> Yes, but let's let's be honest, you are a very strong, capable developer. And if you are running into situations where this thing is breaking in surprising ways, like that's a sign that there is something that is missing that is maybe it's regarding to test and then confirming that the right shape of data is always being sent down. Maybe it's a little bit more of like a staging sort of environment where like any API changes go up and then also making sure that it's still working on the client side. So then that would be more of like a process change. So that does influence my opinion a little further to recognize that perhaps there is more of like a safety net that's missing here. And the snapshot seems like one way to increment to get there. That's kind of like a low hanging, like, let's just capture what we know. And even though the test failure errors are horrible to read, at least it's giving us some confidence. Or if it's not, then you'll find that out too, and then pursue a different route. But yeah, GraphQL is a nice world. I haven't lived in that world yet. One day, one day I'll be there. 
one day. And then you'll be like, wait, it's actually got all these complicated other things that you have to deal with. What was Chris talking about? Uh, so I look forward to when we get to have that conversation. But yeah, I, I appreciate also what you're saying about staging, because that is another thing that we are not leveraging terribly well here. We do have a staging environment, but I actually don't even know how I would do this in the context of a mobile app. I'm able to make requests to the API directly. And so I do that in development and then I do that against production and I can compare those. But in terms of does the quote unquote, does the app work from a user perspective? I would love to be able to have a staging environment and hit that from a real mobile instance. And that's not something that I've set up. I can poke at production, but I don't really have a way to set up staging. And I don't, I'm not sure how to do that. If you can do that through like test flight or something like that for real mobile apps. Yeah, I'm also not sure. I'm not as experienced in that area, but that was going to yeah, be my question is if you could do that through test flight. I want to be positive and say, sure, that's got to be a thing. That's got to be something that other teams use. So yeah, I'd be curious if you decide to pursue that route, what you find. Indeed. Well, yeah, well, thank you for chatting through that. I'm glad we got to chat through your discussion and weird similar parallels, I think, between the two of them. So uh, there's some tech stuff, there's some process stuff, there's some people stuff. Turns out they're all the same problems. They're just different sides of them all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of fun how even though we're spending so much time apart, we seem to be having some similar quandaries. There's really only one developer and they're just traveling back and forth through time and doing all of the work at the same time. We're all just one developer. Like that one electron theory. All right, I'm getting weird. Maybe we should wrap it up. (laughs) Gone too far. (laughs) Yeah, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.